Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. How is Hamilton handling the province's Greenbelt Development Plan? Getting tough on drunk drivers, helping teachers with AI, Supercrawl is back, and a new resource for people with vision loss. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hey, hundreds of Hamiltonians gathered last night at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center to have their say on development of the Greenbelt here in town. Toronto, Mississauga, Georgina, Halton Region, Oakville and Brampton have all opposed the removal of the land. What is required here to not let this happen is a joint force of all of the participants who are against it to voice speak with one voice. We don't agree with the plan so to ask us to have an input in a positive way on something that no one agrees with a very big obstacle for many of us to get past. Just a little snippet of the many voices who, well, made their voice heard as the city wanted to gather some public feedback on its priorities during conversations with the provincial land facilitator in terms of potentially developing these greenbelt lands. Maureen Wilson, the councillor for Ward 1, and Craig Kassar, the councillor in Ward 12, both of the city of Hamilton, were at that meeting last night and with us today here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ms. Wilson, Mr. Kassar, good morning. How are you? Morning. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Maureen, we'll start with you. Uh, For Hamilton residents who were not in attendance last night, how would you describe what you heard from the public? Well, first of all, uh, I think you described the the scene well, but it was uh, at a facility that holds about 450 people. It was at capacity, and there were another at least 100, if not more, uh, that were not able to gain entrance uh, entry to the building. How would I describe it? I think the community uh, did speak with great um, in unity. Um, they don't want these lands to be developed. They value them as they are. And as one uh, individual said, this is our responsibility to impart these lands to the, to the next generation. And we will stand firm in that opinion. Um, so it was incredibly powerful. And I think if anybody wanted to uh, describe the opposition to uh, Premier Ford's moves on the Greenbelt uh, as just a bunch of activists, he didn't see this crowd last night. These are engaged citizens who may not normally come out to a public meeting. Uh, They were very firm in their opinion and their views. Craig, what were your takeaways from last night's meeting? Yeah, very similar. Uh, I think it was a huge positive voice from the community coming together and speaking up against uh, taking land from the Greenbelt. Some points that have been made before and were made last night in talking to people is the land's not needed, right? The Housing Affordability Task Force that the PC government uh, had to a report and said the land wasn't needed. The Auditor General said the land wasn't needed. The city of Hamilton and all its residents have said the land is not needed. And I think it's important to point out that we have already hit our annual target for approving units as of September, 4,700 units. So the city is proving that we can build within the former urban mm-hmm. boundary without Greenbelt. And the residents recognize that and want the city to keep doing more of that. We're chatting about to developing local Greenbelt lands with two city councillors, Maureen Wilson, Ward 1, Craig Kassar, Ward 12. They were both at last night's public info meeting at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Centre, which hundreds of Hamiltonians came out to, and many of them, the overwhelming majority, voicing their displeasure with how the provincial government is handling this situation. And 
It's a bit of a rock and a hard place, Maureen, because we know that the city has already said, uh, listen, even Mayor Horvath uh, not that long ago saying that, listen, the provincial government, you, you should kill this plan. We, as Craig just mentioned, are building homes. We're getting things done. But it doesn't sound like Housing Minister Paul Calandra is going to do that. So how do we proceed? How do we go forward here? Well, first of all, let me also note for your for you, Rick, and your listeners, um, of the hundreds of people who were in attendance, who was not in attendance? So the an, an invitation went out to area MPPs, uh, provincial members of parliament, uh, Donna Skelly, Neil Lumsden, Sandy Shaw. Um, only one of those individuals showed up, and that was MPP Sandy Shaw. So my question to your listeners and to all elected members, when did it become acceptable for elected officials to avoid discussing and debating these tough issues with their constituents? Nobody who hides from the public deserves to hold office at any level of government. Hamilton deserves better. So I just want to note that it was jam-packed, it was overcapacity, but there were some people, important people miss, missing, who need to be held accountable and who need to listen and work through this with their residents in a process that, as uh, Councillor Kazar has noted, is not legitimate. And that's just not my opinion. That's the Auditor General who said this process is illegitimate. It does not uphold um, the, the principles of public office. Um, I think a resident who was present last night described it best. This is a hostage taking. This is the government saying we are moving on these lands in the form of a MZO, a ministerial, ministerial zoning order. That means the government can zone it without consultation in whatever shape or form they deem uh, fit. And uh, they don't have to listen to the public. There is no public process. This is was, was a city public meeting. And the rock and the hard place, as you've described, is we're going to do this anyways, but uh, the city wants to hear from the community of if they're going to do this, what can we beg them to, to, uh, to, to think about when they bring in those bulldozers? But it became very clear last night that, like the Auditor General, uh, the community does not believe that this is, is a legitimate land grab. Uh, that the lands are are not needed in order to fulfill the government's housing um, pledge, um, and that they just don't want the city to participate in that. I think that was the overwhelming view. Craig, last one to you. we got about just over a minute. Do you think what was said last night, will it all be incorporated into how the city and the land facilitator work together? Is anything going to change going forward? Well, the community has been very clear, as is council, uh, it was referenced last night that we provided 11 guiding principles for staff to take into the consultation with the facilitator. And those are things like protecting rural areas and our natural heritage, you know, Carolinian forests, wetlands, farmland, um, developing within existing built-up areas, building a mix of housing types, you know, having transportation options that are not car dependency. So we are sending in, and the public is sending in staff with those talking points and guiding principles. So they preclude development on the Greenbelt and outside our urban boundary, which is also a separate large piece of land, 2,200 acres that has been taken uh, from or put into the urban boundary. So you know, I think we have to see how this process plays out, but it comes down to quality of life. Top two things people are concerned about are traffic 
and property taxes. Development outside the urban boundary and in the green belt, which is still outside the urban boundary, will increase traffic and it will suck money from property tax payers already in the city because suburbs need to be subsidized by more dense areas. And and the public wants more dense areas, and that's what city council is doing. So why the province would say we need to go develop in this manner, which is contrary to quality of life, uh, they can't explain that. Well, we'll continue to follow this story as it is, a, as you two know, a hot-button topic, and uh, we'll find out what happens next. Uh, Councillors Wilson, Councillor Kassar, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. In- enjoy your donut. <laughs> thank you very much. That is uh, Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson and Ward 12 Councillor Craig Kassar, both in attendance at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Centre last night as hundreds of people, as you heard, 400-plus individuals, and probably 399 of them opposed to what is happening with local Greenbelt lands, voicing their opinion and their thoughts on how this should be going forward. And we'll keep our finger on the pulse. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We heard for the first time from Ontario's new housing minister, Paul Calandra, regarding a review of the Greenbelt and what would potentially come of it. To be uh, completely clear, I was very supportive of, uh, of uh, removing uh, lands for uh, the purposes of meeting our goal of building 1.5 million homes. We also heard that the new housing minister says more parts of the green belt could be opened up for development, which I'm assuming many Ontarians, including many here in Hamilton, don't want to see. Colin DeMello is Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief and joins us now on GMH. Colin, welcome back. How are you? Hey, good morning. Doing well, thank you. What were your main takeaways from Mr. Calandra's news conference? Yeah, as I was describing it, um, you know, basically he says that the structure of the house is changing, but the foundation remains the same. And that's really important because we heard from the minister of housing, the new minister of housing, that he agreed with the initial decision to remove lands for the green belt uh, to build, uh, you know, 50,000 homes. He says now that he's pushing forward with this plan to continue construction on these lands, even as they review whether these lands should be put back into the Greenbelt. And, you know, he's doing a system-wide review of the entire Greenbelt to see which lands could be removed for more housing. I mean, he said that his primary goal as given to him by Premier Doug Ford is to focus on building 1.5 million homes. So the government is kind of moving in the same direction here. The only things that have changed is that the housing minister was, you know, decided to resign of his own accord and a new housing minister is in. But largely, a lot of it remains the same. And I don't think for the government, much of this is going to go away unless they kind of reverse course and maybe go back to the starting point and and do a, a more um, public review of the, the, the Greenbelt rather than the private rushed slapdash review that they did before. Paul Calandra is going to hold another news conference today. Are we expected to get more information on what exactly this review is going to do? Yeah, I don't know exactly why we're having another news conference so soon after the first one, except for, you know, uh, governments typically in this have two strategies, right? I mean, when they're trying to kind of smother a scandal, they could either deny it any oxygen by not speaking to the media at all, or they could 
you know, just continue to talk about what they want to talk about and slightly try to change the message track so that now the focus is on the future and this future review rather than the past actions of the government. I, sus I suspect that's what might be happening here. I mean, there are still a lot of questions about exactly what this review is going to be, right? How long is it going to take? The last review of the Green Belt that was done in 2015, um, it is, there's a mandated review, by the way. Every 10 years, there has to be a system-wide review of the Green Belt to see whether it still services the needs uh, of, of the green belt and whether more should be added in or some should be removed. Um, the last one was started in 2015 and ended in 2017. So if this one begins in 2024 and ends in 2026, I mean, these lands that were removed stand no chance of being put back in. They're going to be developed in that time. So or at least the, the, the start of it uh, would have would have already taken place. So there are a lot of questions the government is, has is, is still facing about exactly where they're going to go from here. Um, and likely we'll hear more details from the housing minister today. We have a couple more minutes with Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, as we talk about the uh, ever interesting Greenbelt scandal that the uh, provincial government is dealing with. In regards to the review, is is the the, the process of building these homes or or at least getting the planning in place is that paused is that stalled or is that continuing no and that's that really is the big uh you know head shaker here right or head scratcher i should say um the government is working with a provincial facilitator um and this provincial facilitator is supposed to be a nonpartisan individual who is working with these landowners to see you know, how quickly they could get to that point where shovels can actually be in the ground. Um, and and to, to that end, they're also talking to these owners about community benefits on these lands. So, for instance, if there's a community center that's needed, a school that's needed, uh, whatever is needed for those to, to make those communities possible, whether it's the, the sewage infrastructure, etc., that those owners would be paying or those developers would be paying for the lands. So, in effect, the province is saying, okay, well, the owners of these lands, you can move forward and continue towards the goal of building homes on these lands, but we might pull these lands out of the green belt. Oh, we asked the housing minister yesterday, how does this make sense? What happens if they pour the concrete and then your review decides the lands shouldn't be out of the green belt? What happens then? And we didn't really get quite a satisfactory answer, except to say that they're just doing this large review Um to to understand what should be in and what should not be out. Uh, we only got about a minute just to talk about uh, the Auditor General is now going to review how lobbyists and the provincial government, um, I guess, coexist. Yeah, sorry. so this is actually the uh, Attorney General who's going to be looking at uh, the lobbyists, uh, the, the rules surrounding lobbyists. We learned a lot through the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner that developers were given, uh, you know, insider access, direct influence on removing these lands, that there's been a lot of questionable lobbying that's been going on in Ontario. Lobbying is a, a necessary function of getting, uh, you know, policy through governments from external stakeholders, but you have to follow a certain set of guidelines. And there's been some evidence that those guidelines aren't being followed. So the, the, the Auditor General recommended to open up the um, the the rules around lobbying, and that's what the government says they're going to do. We don't know what the proposals are, what they're planning to change, but they say that they're at least starting the process to take a second look to tighten up those rules. Excellent information as always from Colin DeMello. Colin, appreciate your time this morning.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and with some uh, excellent insight on what is happening and at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Very interesting story out of the U.S. and it has been developing over, well, at least the last couple of months. It's called Bentley's Law and Texas is the latest state to adopt or pass legislation to this effect and basically boils down to drunk drivers in Texas and 24 other U.S. states will now have to pay child support if they kill a child's parent or guardian in a crash. Uh, This started, uh, well, uh, a couple of years ago, back in 2021, Cecilia Williams lost her son, her daughter-in-law, and her four-month-old grandson to a drunk driver in a crash in Missouri and said, well, I got to do something. So created this law, lobbied for it, and lo and behold, we have now Bentley's Law in 24 U.S. states. Mothers Against Drunk Driving has said that it supports Bentley's Law. The question is, is there something similar here in Ontario? And if not, should there be? Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, and media commentator, and joins us now on GMH. Mr. Goldkind, good morning. How are you? Great to be with you, Rick. Number one, is there a law like this here in Ontario? Not even in the zip code. And anybody who thinks that this is easy to fix or, you know, to do what they've done in Texas, it's not. I mean, you just think of the terrible situation that most of your listeners, Rick, know of Marco Muzzo and what ended up being done to the Neville Lake family. Not only the deaths on the day of Marco Muzzo's driving, but the terrible suicide of Edward Lake you know, long after. This is really a fantastically interesting uh, legislation piece in Texas. And here's the part, Rick, that most people don't know. In Texas, where you can't agree on anything, in the United States, where people don't agree that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, (laughs) this was passed 143 to zero. That should tell us something. When you digest the the details of this, does anything jump out at you, good or bad, as to whether how this is going to work? Well, there's going to be some bad because there's going to be situations where you might say, well, there's going to be a technicality or clever defense lawyers like myself will come up with a way to say this is either unconstitutional or it's improper or it's an overreach in the criminal law, that these are things meant for the civil law. But remember, Rick, You don't need to drive through the United States or even Canada to know all those billboards in the states of all the lawyers. Bringing a civil lawsuit is very expensive. It takes years. But the reason that I think this is such a fascinating law, if I can just drive the point home, is that the criminal law is meant to express society's condemnation of certain acts, moral blameworthiness. We do not have a culture yet, and we definitely don't have it in Canada. You and I don't have enough time to get into just how not seriously drunk driving is still taken in this country and what a scourge it is. This is something that I think Texas is saying, look, this isn't something that's okay when you leave a wedding or bar mitzvah or a Texas Rangers game on a Saturday night. If you commit this carnage, it's not just your jail sentence that's going to be the price you pay. It's going to be to try and make the victim whole. And I think there's something very appealing about the law being used in that way. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, media commentator. We're talking about Bentley's Law, which was recently passed in Texas. If someone is convicted of drunk driving, they would have to pay child support if they kill a child's parent or guardian 
in that crash. You mentioned the Marco Muzzo case uh, a few minutes ago. A lot of people think that he got off uh, lightly, and I, I would I would agree with that at the end of the day. And you just mentioned that, you know, impaired driving in this province, in this country, isn't taken as seriously as it should be. Does anyone know why? I mean, that that seems bonkers. I'll tell you, I have my views. They're my personal views. I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I deal with, you know, the law every day, all day and twice on Sunday. But here's what I think. Two things. One, on the very week that Marco Muzzo was in a new market courthouse, being convicted and sentenced for these offenses that ruined a beautiful, beautiful family. Drunk driving had its highest weekend of arrest in Newmarket on that weekend. Marco Muzzo was a case that was world-renowned across you know, the cover of every newspaper back when there were more newspapers. Now, that was the highest weekend of drunk driving. That should tell you something. And number two, Rick, this is a crime that is still seen sort of as a victimless crime you get a $1,200 fine. And here's the kicker. As long as you don't run a kid over, as long as you don't smash you into an older person, you're never tasting jail. In Newmarket, you may because some judges have cracked down. But until we stop making the sentences just dependent on whether or not you hit somebody or you were lucky enough to get home before you hit somebody or the cops pinched you, we really need to look at the act of getting behind the wheel drunk versus the after effect of what happens if you're unlucky enough, like Marco Muzzo was, to go through the wrong intersection. His act was no worse, in my view, Rick, than somebody who was just as drunk as him, got off a private jet, got into a, a Range Rover, made it home, and didn't kill somebody. It's just luck that they didn't get the kind of sentence that Marco Muzzo did. I guess, and this will be the last one for you because I know we got to run. I guess this could be extended to distracted driving, where in many regions it is past impaired driving in terms of fatal collisions or, or, or at least collisions. That would open up a whole other can of worms. Right. And just again, because I'll give you the defense lawyer point of view. There's going to be a lot of challenges and attacks on this. And I don't know that it would fly in Canada, that it's overreaching. And if a drunk driver who kills the kid has to pay child support, why doesn't somebody who shoots or beats a kid or neglects a kid? and God forbid they die, why are they now not on the hook in the same way? There's a lot of interesting arguments here, but philosophically, this is a very, very tempting one. And again, if like me, you take the position that this is not a law or a crime that is properly or suitably punished, it's viewed as like a, a Range Rover crime or leaving a Leafs game crime, rather than a crime that's more dangerous, arguably, than half of the January 6th people who are doing 22 years in jail. I know which one, one I think is more dangerous to lives and violence. Maybe I'm an outlier, but this hopefully sends the message, Rick, that there's at least one state that says, we're not going to turn a blind eye to this kind of crime anymore. I'm in your corner on that one. Ari, always appreciate the time, appreciate the insight, and have a great day. Good to be with you, Rick. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, and media commentator. The latest news, weather, next on GMH on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Research out of Brock University. This is pretty interesting. As outlines ways that high school teachers can teach responsible AI use. You've heard of ChatGPT. You may have used ChatGPT or other artificial intelligence technology to... Well, just uh, play around with it, see what it's all about, maybe help you do whatever you need to do. 
Dr. Louis Vellante is a professor of educational governance at Brock University, president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Education, and the lead author of this research project entitled Leveraging AI to Enhance Learning. Dr. Vellante, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. Why do you, why do you, why was it important for you to study this and, and help, in this case, high school teachers teach AI responsibly? Well, I think, you know, it starts from the premise that it's going to be really, really hard to keep it out of the classroom. Um, so while in the past when we've had teachers use or instructors or professors use, you know, plagiarism detection software like Turnitin, uh, it's going to be really, really tough uh, for us to have some sort of outright ban of this or um, avoid the fact that it's already quite pervasive. So I, I, me and my colleagues, we, we approached it from the point of, look, it's out there. We need to address it. We need to figure out a way for teachers to be able to, to um, also teach about it in their classroom and, and use it in a way that is ethically and educationally defensible. In that regard, um, we know that AI is being used in school, whether it's high school, post-secondary, heck, even probably elementary school. Is and some might say, you know, that it's just cheating. It's allowing the technology to do the work for the student. Can it also be seen or or used as a resource, i.e., you know, you could get a foundation or, or some kind of base element of knowledge by using something like ChatGPT, but then then you got to do the extra work to, to put your own kind of fingerprints all over it. Is that kind of what you're trying to do in this regard? Yeah, I think you just summarized it perfectly. I agree. Number one, if you're taking something that is generated by ChatGPT and you're not changing anything, then yeah, that is cheating. That's you're, you're, You haven't done any of the work. Uh, the model that we've proposed and the steps we've proposed for teachers to work with their students is to take that original piece of work and move it along um, so that they could refine the ideas and add their own their own work to it, their own perspective, but probably more importantly, to push those ideas in, in, in the realm of more high order critical and creative thinking. Because, you know, ChatGPT on its own, when it does generate text, it tends to be quite shallow. It's described as shallow. Hmm. Um, and I can go into, you know, you know how it's generated, uh, the, uh, the type of algorithm that's being used and some of the pitfalls to that as well. So what should high school teachers be asking of their students? Because my guess is, listen, you, you can use things like chat GPT, but I want to see blank. What should teachers be expecting? Well, we've proposed what we call the ICE model. So ideas, connections, and extensions. The first step is ideas. So when you look at chat GPT content or any other AI generated content for that matter, because it's also important to keep in mind, there's other AI um applications out there and they're quickly growing in importance as well uh the first very the very first thing that needs to be done is to do a fact check because ai generated content is generated at one word at a time based on a number of weighted options so there is the possibility for content to be generated that exists already on the web that is factually incorrect so the very first step students need to think about is Let's say they generated a paragraph or two with ChatGPT to actually first check the facts that are embedded 
that are contained within that text. And, you know, that that is something that is really, really important. I think even if you weren't using AI-generated content, if you were pulling something off of the web, you'd want to teach your students sort of those digital literacy, critical literacy skills. And, and I think that's something that it, it's important for all of us, even yourself, you're, you know, you're, um, you're, you're interviewing me and you probably do some research and you look at stuff online, you need to be aware, you kind of want to make sure that the, the information you're pulling from whatever source is accurate. Yeah, I wouldn't feel right going to an AI resource and say, hey, let's ask Dr. Volante five questions and then and then just settling on those questions, right? You, you got to do this research and students have to go above and beyond in terms of making sure that whatever they're compiling, whatever project they're working on is actually legitimate and it's not just all, uh, you know, based on what is on the Internet, because not everything on the Internet is true or factual, as you just mentioned. Well, using your example, right, you wouldn't want to just generate five questions to ask me based on chat GPT, but probably more important um, than that is something we talk about in the paper that we've published, which is to extend those ideas and to add an authentic assessment element. So you're, you're a, a radio um, producer slash, you know, host. I mean, you know, imagine if you were in, um, journalism or a radio program and all you did was hand in a script i mean wouldn't it be much more important to actually do a mock interview of someone um so that's what we're proposing within our model as well is to bring in that authentic assessment element so have a student do a presentation have them do a mock interview have them demonstrate some of the ideas they might have learned in their science class uh, in front of their peers and ChatGPT can help you with that right there's no substitute for getting in front of uh, your colleagues or a room and actually doing more of those authentic performance-based elements that's a great point we only got about 10 seconds is is this research project being used in high schools or is it being used at brock well it, it was only published a short while ago um so you know it's like anything else in academia it does take its time to sort of make its way out there i'm quite hopeful that uh, it will start being picked up. But um, a Globe and Mail story just the other day was talking about how school boards have yet to sort of have a very clear policy in relation to AI. So I'm hopeful that it will be picked up. This will certainly uh, help us get there, that's for sure. Dr. Volante, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you, have a good day. You too, that's Dr. Louis Volante, Professor of Education Governance at Brock University, also the lead author of this research project, Leveraging AI to Enhance Learning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In our finale of this year's Summer Cruising Series, we've been profiling some of the biggest events in and around town, and we end with a bang because Super Crawl is back tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday, James Street North is going to be rocking and it is going to be rolling. And one of the people behind Supercrawl for years and years and years since day one, Tim Potasek. He is the festival director of Supercrawl and joins us now on GMH. Tim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. This is the 15th year of Supercrawl? Yes. My yes, gosh. Where's the time gone? I know. Uh, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest change that you have seen or or just felt since year number one? Well, just the continued growth, you know, barring a couple 
couple crazy COVID years, but like we just, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, it's just really exciting to see people coming out in, uh, in the volumes that they're coming out now. Did you ever think all these years later that it would be this big and this successful? Uh, no, never thought so. Just, uh, we just keep putting our head down and plugging away and doing good work and bringing good talent to Hamilton and, you know, it pays off with, uh, with people getting excited about what we're doing. Yeah. How big did you think it was going to get? You know, a few thousand oh. people here and there and that's it? Yeah. We had no expectations, to be honest. And I think sometimes that's the best way to look at these things. Yeah. They just start and they organically grow and grow. And, um, yeah, we've just, uh, we've just gone with it. Well, I'll ask you this as, as the organizer, as the festival director, is it, does it get easier by the year? Well, we fine-tune our logistics and our methods of what we're doing, but no, there's always bumps in the road, and it just is what it is. But we're quite seasoned pros at putting this event on and, and other events, and we have a good model, and uh, we execute well. Well, the highlight, of course, is the music that uh, we're all going to hear starting this weekend. What do you got for us this year? Uh, just a multitude of so many different things. Um, obviously, I always start with like just a really deep amount of local talent. So, so many artists from the local community, uh, about 40. And then uh, we just complement that with like, some, you know, big headliners and groups that are um, are developing. So we have, and we, we challenge the evenings. They're all a little bit different on the music side. So it's sort of a rock rock beginning on the Friday. So we have Broken Social Scene as a headliner on one stage and the Flatliners. Boy Golden is coming from Winnipeg. He's got a hit song right now. Um, and then on Saturday, we have uh, a hip-hop stage, so a ton of local hip-hop artists. And then we have Shad coming in from Toronto and Bad, Bad, Not Good headlining that night. And then we have a bunch of blues and uh, easier listening stuff as we like sort of roll into Sunday with uh, Rain uh, Maida and Chantel Kerbiatsuk, uh headlining our Sunday stage. And then we have the Hamilton All-Stars with Steve Strongman putting together a whole group of like Hamilton stalwarts that are just uh, some of the best musicians in town. It is a phenomenal lineup. And here to discuss it uh, is Tim Potasek, the festival director of Supercrawl. It begins tomorrow, continues Saturday and Sunday on James Street North with thousands upon thousands of people converging in downtown Hamilton. Full set list and all the other details online at supercrawl.ca. You mentioned the different kind of musical genres. Is that part of the appeal? One one little slice of the appeal of Supercrawl is that you can hear, from a musical sense, so many different acts. We always try to mix it up. Like, I think, you know, it's not always the same uh, genres that are happening, and we always try to do something a little bit different. And a lot of the times it just comes down to, you know, sometimes availability, and we build a night around a headliner or some key acts uh, locally. So it just it morphs every year, so it's a little bit different, and it's not the same. And I think that's one of the things that people love about Supercrawl is that we're always changing, always you know doing unique, different things. And so it's a little bit exciting, and there's always something for someone, right? We just have so many things, as you know. It's not just music. It's art and theater and performance and fashion and drag shows and hundreds of craft vendors and 40 food trucks. So there's something really for everyone, a massive family zone. So there's tons of things for people to do. Looking at the weather forecast, it looks phenomenal. It's not going to be, you know, 40 with the humidity. It's going to be quite comfortable. How glad are you to see that as opposed to what we saw earlier this week? Oh, always glad for good weather. <laughs> Trust me. It's like, we don't look at it. Well, I mean, some do. I try not to. I actually did look at it this year because 
um, just all this hot spell that came through. We were like, hmm, wonder what's going to happen. And sometimes you, yeah, sometimes it can like really mess with the weather. But like, really thankful for an incredible weekend. Yeah, it looks it looks phenomenal. You know, some sun, some cloud highs in the twenties. 20, 22, 23 range, that is absolutely perfect. Is is there a highlight for you during the weekend? I just love seeing all the people out. Um, I mean, I certainly like will partake in some of the uh, acts that are on stage from some of the local ones that we've booked that I really love and uh, some of the interesting things that I've not never seen before. So we'll always take have a couple experimental, you know, bookings. Not, they're not experiments in, the, in that sense, but like just things that I am not familiar with having seen live. So... Uh, that's always fun. The art installations are always fun, and I always like catching a drag show or two at our fashion tent. It's a lot of fun. I was on the website earlier this morning, and uh, one one little key snippet kind of caught my attention, the, the call for volunteers. Are you set for volunteers? Do you still need people to come out? No, we're totally good. We've got a great stable of volunteers. That call gets filled pretty early. I mean, we'll always take a few more people if we get some last-minute uh entries that people want to help but we have a great volunteer team and that you know that sort of like it's just another element of things that happen in Hamilton like every year we put that volunteer call up it just gets filled really fast every year we put our vendor call up for people that want to be on the street it's like like so much so oversubscribed it's it's tough because we have to make hard decisions on who can participate and who can't so um you know good problems to have I yeah suppose. absolutely should mention everything is free like the music is free Everything's free. Yeah, we do branded, you know, ticketed shows throughout the year uh, to promote some things. But like the festival itself, everything at the festival is free. So it's for everyone, you know, everybody in every income sphere in the city can come and enjoy things that, you know, normally would, you know, cost quite a bit of money to go to see privately. So really excited to be able to bring that to Hamilton. Going to be an awesome uh, set of shows, lots of food, lots of fun to be had on James North this weekend. Tim, best of luck. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. Tim Ponisic is Supercrawl's festival director. You can check out all the details you need to know, the schedule, uh, the lineup, where things are set up online. Supercrawl.ca is the website to head to. There are some road closures already in effect. James North is closed as we speak from King to Strong, and that will happen uh, all weekend, of course. And York Boulevard is going to be closed between Bay and Houston. And uh, that starts at 7 tonight and will continue on until 5 a.m. on Monday. Check it out. Supercrawl on James Street North. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Finalist number three of ten in the Lion's Lair Pitch Competition, annual competition put on by Innovation Factory, the 13th anniversary, in fact. The gala is going to be held on September 27th at Carmen's Banquet Center. You can get tickets by a table, lionslayer.ca, and it is an exciting event because it brings together the the incredible minds in this community that are building and and trying to push the envelope in some cases and trying to just make other people's lives so much easier. And that is going to be the focus of today's interview because there's an awesome uh, business out there called Vision Tiff, which is basically using wearable devices, artificial intelligence and wearable devices to uh, help people with vision loss and the blind community kind of see what's out there in terms of describing what is in front of them. It, it's really fascinating. Chun Yu is the CEO of Vision Tiff and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Chun, good morning. How are you? Hi, hello. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, Vision Tiff, how did this idea come to be? Um, it was because my uncle was blind. 
So his life was really horrible. And um, as I'm so lucky to live in Canada, right? I wasn't born here. And I just feel, and I would like to do something to help the people with their vision. Because um, just like my uncle, right? He was just like my father. But I mean, what's, what were the difference? It just only he couldn't see, right? So if we had, if he had a device like our current developing and then his life might be completely changed it so from that idea you know your uncle uh, cannot see and you're thinking we got to do something how did you come to getting um, uh, this wearable device that can be used for people like your uncle so um so basically the, uh, um how we build it the question was yeah yeah so it's kind of because it's kind of everything is about the timing right and then you can see lately the hardware and also the software for the AI, it just rapidly developed it. So we take advantage of it and then we use the um, our uh, cutting edge software and hardware to build that one is a much more cost effective uh, wearable device. So you're now a finalist in the Lion's Lair pitch competition. Uh, what would it mean if you won the whole thing? Then it will create awareness and then tell people, hey, uh, we are building something for the blind and visual loss community, and then their life will be much better. They, they don't need to depend on anyone. They will be just like everyone. How are you preparing your pitch? I know you're already at the finalist stage, so you've done well in terms of pitching already. With that last kind of hurrah on September 27th, what do you have planned? Um, well, just, uh, just like usual, right? So nothing special because this is a fantastic <laughs> device. And then, um, well, I think it will speak for itself. Do you envision partnering with people in the healthcare community, even after the competition, to get this device into people's hands? Yes. In fact, we already completed MVP 1.0. And then our sales manager, Bob Brown, and he has the device. He's uh, testing the device and also um, connecting with the community. Wow. How long did it take to make this device? Oh, it was a really long process because we had a few um, incorrect assumptions. It took us, um, it has been, um, for the first MVP, it took us almost a year, uh, almost a year and a half. Wow, that is tremendous. Well, the proof is in the pudding. This thing is going to be a sensational device for many individuals with vision loss. Best of luck on September 27th, Sean, and uh, who knows, you might turn out to be the winner. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Chen Yu is the CEO of VisionTiff. You can find out more information online, visiontiff.com. That's visiontif.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.